Which constitution should conservatives pay attention to? The original constitution or the one after the 14th Amendment? And is the constitution pro-slavery? This is a two-part podcast. We'll get into both those issues on The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Look, if you want to support the show financially, the best way to do it is to go to McClanahanAcademy.com. McClanahanAcademy.com. You can enroll free of charge there. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, free of charge. And, of course, you can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. That keeps this podcast free to you or to everybody else. And it also gets you great educational content. If you like the podcast, you'll love the content at McClanahanAcademy.com. And I've got classes on all kinds of things, including the Constitution, which, of course, I'm going to talk about today. I've got an American Constitutions class and a four-part series called The Originalist Papers, where I get into the original meaning and understanding of the Constitution, which is a big topic and, again, something I'll hit today. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get that class and purchase as many classes as you can. Also, support the podcast by rate, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube for the algorithm. Those are great ways to support the show. All right. Well, I did a podcast a while back on Randy Barnett, and he had a book out on the 14th Amendment. It's a monster book. And the 14th Amendment has gotten a lot of publicity recently because people on the left understand, and Barnett's not on the left. I'll say that. He's kind of a left libertarian, so but he's not. he doesn't consider himself to be a leftist. He considers himself to be an originalist and a conservative, uh, in a way. Now, um, the leftists like the 14th Amendment because they know the 14th Amendment is the key to destroying the original Federal Republic because of judicial interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Now, if you read Raoul Berger's book, Government by Judiciary, you understand that the 14th Amendment was not designed to do all the things that it does today, namely incorporation. So the idea that the Bill of Rights essentially applies to the states is something that the Supreme Court essentially invented in the 20th century. And really by the middle of the 20th century is when they were doing it. We know that the court itself said that the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states. We know that uh, even through the 14th Amendment, earlier than that, in the 19th century, we know that the Supreme Court said in the early 19th century the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states. And even when they were trying to use a 14th Amendment justification to do it in the late 19th century, the court said no. We know that John Marshall said unequivocally, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. This is before, of course, the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment is supposed to be the turning point. And the 14th Amendment gets a lot of publicity for a lot of reasons. One of the other things, of course, that's going on right now is this battle over the debt ceiling. You've got legalists running around saying, well, they can't, they can't uh, repudiate the debt. They can't debate the debt ceiling because it says in the 14th Amendment that the United States government has to pay its debts. So I guess if that's the case, I mean, then, I mean, if you take that seriously, what are the two options the United States government has? Well, it can essentially not pay for anything but the debt, or it can just print to oblivion, and people are talking about the $1 trillion coin and all this stuff. We can inflate the currency so bad that it's going to destroy the economy. But Regardless, it's a whole other issue. 
the 14th Amendment really is an important part of how we debate the founding period and then the Constitution. Now, one of the things that's happened, of course, and this is why Randy Barnett writes this piece, and I'm going to talk about it in two parts. This is the first part. We've got to do this in two parts because I can't do you know an hour and a half podcast. So it will take me that long to get through this stuff. So Randy Barnett understands that the arguments made against the original Constitution essentially come down to this. It was written by slave owners, racist slave owners, and we can't pay attention to it. This is kind of the same argument that the 1619 Project uses. Uh, when it talks about the founding period, generally. So Barnett, like the Jaffaites, has come up with a solution to that problem. Okay, This may or may not be true, and in fact, Barnett would argue against it because he says you know, the, the mechanisms were there to abolish slavery. And we'll talk about that. Was the Constitution pro-slavery, anti-slavery? I, he, he actually agrees with me, or I agree with him on this point, um, when, when he argues one particular position, and we'll get to that. But um, regardless, he, he came up with a solution to this. Well, we shouldn't even pay attention to the original Constitution. We've got the 14th Amendment. And see, the Straussians would say, you know what? It doesn't really matter about the founding period. I mean, that's important. We've got this proposition nation myth that Lincoln attached to the founding. So the founding fathers were important, but they weren't racist. In fact, equality, which they all advocated, was a conservative principle. What both sides essentially want to do is disarm the left. They want to take the charge of racism and slavery out of the conversation. But what they don't realize is that really is the only tool that these people have in their bag. That's it. Their tool, their tool chest has one tool. It's a hammer, and it's called isms, you see. And it doesn't matter if it's racism, sexism, misogynism, ageism. It doesn't matter. The ism tool is all they have. And they understand this because American politics have been reduced to emotion. And I'll give you an example of this. We just had all this angst over uh, the most recent situation in Memphis where a, a man was killed by the police. Um, and this has caused a lot of racial angst in America again. Of course, the cops that did it were all black. The man was black, of course. And so, but this still, if you look at the press, is still about racism. And not only that, it shows you how stupid their arguments really are. And not only that, it ignores the fact that um, out of all the unjustified killings of people in America by cops, you know, unarmed people being killed, more white people face this than black people. And more white people face these kind of things than black people. So, but because of, the, because of the emotional charge, you see, that doesn't have the same kind of emotional effect. And everyone knows it. The race baiters know it. The race hustlers know it. Everyone knows it. So what you have is this one tool, the ism tool, and it's an emotional tool. So arguing with these people on logic, which essentially is what the Jaffaites and the Randy Barnetts of the world want to do, and if we could just persuade them logically, this is not the case, if we could just show them that, you know, really... Uh, these things, we didn't have racists here, and we didn't have pro-slavery people here, and if we just paid attention to this 14th Amendment, everything would be okay. And the Jaffaites, if we just believed in equality as a conservative principle, and the way the founding generation would do it, everything would be okay. It's like they're mentally immature in a way, because they don't see what the other side would do with that. Okay, 
We'll believe in the 14th Amendment. You know what the 14th Amendment did? It centralized power, which means there isn't really any conservative opposition that can work. It made it to where the entire central government is the government of the United States, and everything comes from the top down, and it made this, this battle over the center supreme. And you know who's going to win that battle? The left. 99.9% of the time. Why? Well, because... And it, um, you can say, what about Republicans that control the House? Do they, do they even sound anything like conservatives most of the time? No, they sound like a bunch of leftists with discarded old leftist positions. They just haven't gone far enough yet. And this is exactly what happens every single time. Same thing with the presidency. It doesn't matter. So we've got leftist progressives running the country because this is what you're going to get with the 14th Amendment. So you've actually conceded the entire game to the left if you say, fine, we're going to say the Constitution we need to follow is the amended Constitution. I made a point years ago, and uh, it, was on, it was on Twitter, I believe, and I said, you know, the, uh, something about the 1789 Constitution and the 1860s, 1868 Constitution. There's only one Constitution! Okay, uh, but that's not what people, this is not what Randy Barnett argues and other people. There are two Constitutions in America. In fact, I would say there's three Constitutions in America. There's the original Constitution, there's the amended Constitution with the 14th Amendment, and then there's the Constitution that the left wants, which really doesn't have any restraints on anything. That's the unwritten Constitution. That's the British model. So we've got a written Constitution, two of those, and an unwritten Constitution, and this is what we're constantly fighting about in the United States. So we've got all these things going on, and what you have are people that are arguing positions. Same thing with the Jophites. Well, equality. We've got to believe in equality. The left says, yeah, sure. We've got to believe in that. Equity. We've got to believe in equality, equity, whatever this means. They take it to wherever the point they want to take it. That's the thing that these people don't get. When you, when you argue their positions, you lose. And what Barnett is doing is arguing their position, essentially, by saying we need to believe in the 14th Amendment, even though he's going to try to, in this piece, argue that the Constitution uh, wasn't about slavery, and, and I'll get to that, uh, which I agree with, by the way. I agree with to a point. I think he's incorrect about some things. But also this idea that somehow the 14th Amendment is the most important amendment. Well, I mean, we could, I could even argue that position. It is the most important amendment, but not because it's followed correctly or because um, it's interpreted properly, but because people have used it as a bludgeon, as a hammer, to attack the original Constitution incorrectly. So we've got that. And then, of course, you got the people running with equality and equity and all this kind of stuff. So let me get into this piece because it is a long piece, and I'm going to do it in two episodes. Uh, that way it doesn't go, like I said, for an hour and a half on this particular piece. The title is, again, Was the Constitution Pro-Slavery? So Barnett, who was, by the way, considered an originalist professor, a law professor, uh, I talked about his book, and there is this idea, can a 14th Amendment person be an originalist? And I would say no. But, of course... Um, he argues that we don't need to pay attention to the original Constitution. This is one of the most ridiculous assertions in the entire piece. But let me get into this. He says, In recent years, I have publicly complained that members of the conservative legal movement in general, and originalists in particular, have paid too much attention to the founding and the framers, and not enough attention to the Reconstruction Amendments and the Republicans who made them a part of the Constitution. Originalists are paying too much attention to the founding period. Now, that's a really funny statement. What are we supposed to pay attention to? 
Well, the Reconstruction Amendments, because that is now is the real Constitution. Only because, it's only the real Constitution because the courts have made it that way. Was that the, found, was that the original intent? Was the original intent of the 14th Amendment to do what it's done? Now, Barnett actually makes the case in his book that it is. He, he goes after Raoul Berger, essentially, and says that it is. The 14th Amendment has been interpreted by the courts the way that it was designed. Now, I disagreed with this. I did an entire podcast on his book. I don't think his book is that good. And again, when you start citing the people that he cites, you have basically played into the hands of the left. You've conceded the field. They're not right. But when you argue their positions, what do you have? So what we need to do is not pay attention to the original Constitution as ratified, which is still the Constitution, but the one that's amended by the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And I guess you could say then, by default, then you got to believe in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 9th Amendments. All these were good amendments too. Now, the 18th Amendment, of course, is no longer in effect. But it's amazing about that is that people figured out with the 18th Amendment, we had to have an actual constitutional amendment to ban liquor in the United States. And yet the general government can ban all kinds of stuff now and it doesn't have to have an amendment. It's a little strange that people understood back in the early 20th century that required an amendment, but now it doesn't require an amendment. I mean, it's odd, right? And why is that? Well, because we've got nationalization of everything. And the Congress has unlimited powers. And it has unlimited powers because, well, the states really can't do much about this, right? That was the whole idea with the 14th Amendment, at least the way that Barnett essentially outlines the 14th Amendment. Now, I mean, again, Barnett would not say the states don't have powers. I'm making his argument a little bit simplistic here, but this is what it will naturally lead to. People are going to ignore all of those. They don't want nuance. They want one answer. It's A or B. And if you're going to say, fine, 14th Amendment, that's the, okay, good, 14th Amendment, then we're going to be Eric Foner. We're gonna we're gonna nationalize everything. We're gonna be and we're gonna believe and we're gonna be James Oakes. And the thing about it, and Barnett actually cites James Oakes. I think James Oakes uh, wrote the introduction to his book on the Fourteenth Amendment. We're gonna be that. And if we're that, then we don't really believe in uh, federalism or uh, the original Constitution any longer. So originalism now is the Fourteenth Amendment. So Barnett says, I have argued that the Constitution that needs defending from unwarranted criticism is the amended Constitution we have today, not the original Constitution of 1789. So are you really then an originalist? Originalists in particular don't need to defend the original Constitution, but the amended Constitution. So what the hell is originalism? I mean, this is ridiculous, but this is what he's saying. No, no, no. Originalists don't defend the original Constitution, defend the amended Constitution. Well, is the original Constitution then the, I mean, is the 1789 Constitution the original Constitution because it was amended even before that? We had the Bill of Rights, then we had the 11th and 12th Amendments. So uh, do we defend that Constitution or do we defend the one that came out of Philadelphia? What do we defend? Essentially, what he's doing here is distorting what originalism is. Originalism is the understanding of the document as it was going to the states for ratification because this is how they said it would be interpreted. This is, how they, this is what they said the powers of the general government would be. And that really didn't change with the 14th Amendment. I'm sorry, but it didn't. But Barnett would think it does. 
So if we're going to be originalists, then we need to go back to that model. This single-minded focus on the original Constitution of 1789 has left originalism vulnerable to the now-familiar objection that the Constitution was made by, and for the benefit of, slaveholders. You see, the problem is, we open our... Say, he, he's looking at this as a political problem. We have a political problem now. And look, we did a, a nice symposium uh, with the Abbeville Institute a couple of weeks ago, um, or a little over a week ago, on antebellum Southern conservatism, and the idea was that the starting point was Lincoln and how and Jefferson Davis and how essentially they were looking at the same document and coming up with different conclusions. It was a war over history and interpretation. And so what what Barnett is doing here is and that was a political issue. History is being used for political reasons, and that's exactly what Barnett's saying. Well, the other side is using this for political reasons. So what we need to do is come up with a way to defeat that because their emotional attacks are working. So if we just say, hey, we agree with you on this, at least to an extent, we're just going to ignore the 1789 Constitution because, yeah, those guys were slave owners. Uh, but even though it wasn't, I mean, not the Constitution wasn't pro-slavery, but it doesn't matter because we've got the 14th Amendment now. You've conceded the whole field in a way. Now, I would actually agree that the guys that wrote it were slave owners and they weren't really that committed to the principles that of the Declaration, and this is where Barnett, of course, is going to get wrong too. And so, you would have uh, the argument would actually make sense. The, the response to that should be: So what? Do we have slavery anymore in America? No. Um, does that really? The, now you could say, well, the legacy of slavery. You know, you got race relations and everything else. But was race a byproduct of slavery? Or was slavery a byproduct of race and how people thought of race? I mean, what really happened here? These are bigger historical questions than that. So this article is written in a, in a magazine called Balkanization. And he says, since Balkanization was founded 20 years ago, the view that the original Constitution was illegitimate because it sanctioned slavery and its framers were slaveholding knaves has moved from the margins to the mainstream of academic thought and has now entered the public's consciousness. This this wasn't happening in the last 20 years. Look, people were saying this back in the 1970s, in the 1960s. It was mainstream then. It was mainstream then. This is why in the 70s you had an entire debate about the nature of slavery, because it was a byproduct of the civil rights movement. I mean, th this was mainstream then. According to this narrative, because of this original sin, it is immoral to adhere to the original meaning of the Constitution, even as amended. Statutes of the framers should be removed from public view. Their images should be treated with the same scorn as those depicting Chief Justice Roger Taney, the author of the exorable decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford. So, um, even the, the original meaning of the Constitution, even as amended, needs to go away. Now, who, this could have been predicted 40 and 50 years ago. People were predicting it back then. It was going to happen. Because we already had this movement then, and it wasn't the fringe. This was in mainstream academic thought. It's just taken it time because these mainstream academics had to weave their way through the university system, and they had to get more students, and they had to do. But it was then, right? It was already then. This is why time on the cross was so controversial because it was already ingrained in people's mind about slavery and what it was, or Eugene Genovese. And what he was saying. And all these things were there, right? 
Now he pats himself on the back. In recent years, originalist scholars have done important work rectifying that previous neglect of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. There wasn't really a neglect of this. I mean, Raoul Berger already did it. <laughs> but it didn't fit their political agenda, which was to show that, hey, if we just believed in the Republican Party of the 1860s, that's the Republicans. That's us. If we were just them, that's this is the Straussians. If we just, everybody has realized we were the good guys all along, and the bad guys are always the South, and we need to say the bad guys were Calhoun in the South, and that sounds very much like what the leftists do all the time. Where is the difference? If you want that, just read the left. They do it all. They do it every day of the week. But now conservatives are going to save us because, you know what, we're going to go to the 14th Amendment. The Republicans are right, and Charles Sumner is right. Um, last time I checked, Charles Sumner was not really a conservative. And he wasn't really an originalist either, though he had a very interesting statement uh, in his Crimes Against, uh, against Kansas speech um, where he mentioned the Second Amendment in a way that kind of incorporationists would view it, sort of, today. Uh, he, made a very, he made a pretty spirited defense of the Second Amendment, in that Crimes Against Kansas speech. It's interesting. And if you take my uh, Radical Republicans class at McClanahan Academy, I get into that speech. It's, in fact, the first part of the class because it is such an important speech. So he says, This work included includes not only Evan Burnick's, in my book, The Original Meaning of, of the Constitution, Its Letter and Spirit. It also includes the writings of such originalist scholars as well as Nathaniel Chapman, John Harrison, Kurt Lash, Michael McConnell, Ryan Williams, and Elon Wurman. I still urge the grassroots of the conservative legal movement to focus more on the Republican Party and Reconstruction and less on the framers and the original Constitution. Right, so we got to we got to focus on these Lincolnians because Lincolnian nationalism will then defeat the left. It'll defeat the left because they were all, they were us. Essentially, we're going to adopt the revolution as our own, and if we make it conservative, then they can't say we're bad things. This is, this is the silly argument that these people get into. But in this post, I want to challenge the starkly negative pro-slavery characterization of the original Constitution and its framers that is today offered to undercut the legitimacy of our Constitution. Notice what he did there. We're gonna, he's going he's to go, talk about the original Constitution and how it undercuts our Constitution. So he's saying there's two different Constitutions. There's the original Constitution, and then there's our Constitution. See, it's very subtle, but this is what he did. We don't even pay attention to that original thing anymore. So we've already con he's conceding the entire field to these people. He's conceded the field to the left, and you know what, Barnett? And anyone that believes this, you lose. You've already just, you might as well just go home. You're not even fighting anymore. The original Constitution is, is the defense of American conservatism. It has to be. And... That tradition that it embodied is the defense of American conservatism. Once you break that, you're done. You're done. There's no, there's no more game. You might as well just say, yeah, just you're you left, you're the champions. We'll just do whatever you say. Ironically, today's vociferous critics of the Constitution and the framers have adopted the views of the justly marginalized Roger Tawney. I begin by reframing the founding. So See what he did here? Look, Roger Tawney, there, there's two people in America that are considered to be you know, the worst. One is Roger Tawney. The other, of course, is John C. Calhoun. So 
these people are awful. And if you can just say your, your opponents are John C. Calhoun or Roger Taunty, this again is an emotional charge, then you win. So by saying, you know what, you leftists, you're just like Roger Taney. All you are is Roger Taney. Well, supposedly you win that. Or, you know what, you conservatives, you, you guys, or you lefties, all you are is John C. Calhoun. This is what you've done. We're the good guys. We're the anti-Roger Taney. You see, we have these wars over who, who the villains are and then who the good guys are and how we're going to do it. So he says, the United States was not founded in 1789 and the Constitution is not our founding document. Well, I would agree with that. The United States wasn't founded in 1789, um, and the Constitution, the con but the Constitution is a founding document in terms of establishing the central government the way that it was designed in 1787 and 1788. Okay, so I, I would say that the Constitution, I mean, it's part of the founding documents. The other would be the Articles of Confederation. Now, the Declaration is a is a founding document. In a way, in fact, you could, but I, I would more side with Pauline Meyer who said it's really a defounding document because it's a secession document. There was no central government created by this. So the United States was not founded by the Declaration. It was a secession document to break away from the British and establish free and independent states. The founding documents in that process were all the state constitutions. And then, of course, the Articles of Confederation and then the U.S. Constitution. Those were all the founding documents because what they did is establish governments. The United States is a government. It's a government in many ways, right? I mean, that it's, it's a union, but that union is based on a government. The United States was founded in 1776, and our founding document is a Declaration of Independence that was unanimously adopted by the Congress of the United States. It's a federal republic, by the way, too. I mean, I want to say this, right? So when I say it's a government, this is kind of the same. I mean, Lincoln would say we have a government. It's my government. The union is the government. Um, and it, look, there is a, a bit of truth to that. Uh, it's a federal republic. The central authority is a federal republic. And the United States essentially is a federal republic. So you can have constituent parts to it. and doesn't. There's no definitive answer to how many you have or how big it has to be. It's just a federal republic. And the government is established there to uh, deal with commerce and defense is the founding part of all of that, right? We have the central authority that the states created. The Declaration didn't create anything. It just broke away from something. And then we had these independent states, which were already there, by the way. If you look at the summer review by Jefferson, uh, that's more important than the Declaration. Jefferson's already saying in 1774, we have states and countries. Not 1776. They were already operating this way. The Declaration officially announced the American theory of government, which can be summarized as first came rights and then came, comes government. No, that's not the American theory of government. The American theory of government is federalism. Going back again to the Summer Review, Jefferson points this out. The entire argument in the Summer Review is that the Parliament is abusing its power because we have constituent parts, and that Parliament cannot legislate for the constituent parts because we have no representation, which is part of the Anglo-American tradition. That's the entire founding. He talks about, he says we have a natural right to immigration, these kind of things. But look, the summary view and what he goes into that, of course, is that we have these constituent parts. 
Specifically, the Declaration affirmed the individual, natural, and inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It then affirmed that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Again, this is something Jefferson had said in the summer review to an extent, but not in this particular way. This is something they all believed. That even the parliament had its powers from the consent of the governed. That wasn't an eight, that wasn't an odd thought. The parliament, of course, had the past powers from the consent of the government because these people were elected. Now, you could say in some cases there was the only person who could vote was the person in the parliament. So how democratic really was it? But that didn't matter. These people were elected. On their face, these words seemed completely hostile to the institution of slavery. So in Dred Scott, it was necessary for Chief Justice Taney to explain them away. Taney admitted that the general words of the Declaration would seem to embrace the whole human family, and if they were used in a similar instrument at this day, would be so understood. In other words, by 1856, Taney affirmed that the public meaning of those words was anti-slavery. Well, um, for one group of people, I would say. By the 1850s, yes. You had people like Charles Sumner and others, the abolitionists. Um, Sumner had made this point, but many abolitionists did too, that the Declaration created uh, this anti-slavery movement in America. This would be, again, the 1776 Commission Report. This is what they would say, but I've already talk, talked about it last week. Did that really mean that? Where, where, was the, where does the anti-slavery movement come from? Was it the Declaration? Was it something else? What was going on here? Now, even Barnett's going to argue in this piece that there were some other things happening here, and, and I'll get to that. However, Tawney then claimed that in 1776, it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. This was because of the language as understood in that day had included enslaved persons. The conduct of the distinguished men who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted. In short, Tawney admitted that the words of the Declaration were flagrant, flagrant, flagrantly excuse me, inconsistent with the institution of slavery. So, But what Tawney is saying is that, well, wait a second here, if, if the way that the abolitionists are framing it, if the way that Charles Sumner is framing it is true, then what people did in 1776 and 1777 and in the, in the early founding period, the actions that they had would be inconsistent with this lofty language. You know what? Tawney was not incorrect about that. Tawney wasn't incorrect. The only way to render the Declaration consistent with slavery was to appeal to the original intentions of its framers. In this way, a pro-slavery reading of the Constitution starts with claiming a pro-slavery reading of the Declaration. But that's not true. That's not what you're saying. Uh, it, it, there is no slavery meaning in the Declaration. Now, we can look at things that Jefferson said before and after. We can look at how Jefferson talked about this issue. There is no pro-slavery in either one. There's no pro-slavery in the Declaration. Now, you could even say that uh, it was it was neutral on this. And why was the Declaration neutral? I mean, Barnett's going to say the Constitution is neutral. So is the Declaration. And we know this because Jefferson did try to insert language in the Declaration that would have criticized the slave trade, which he did in the summary view. He would have criticized slavery. But that was removed. And it was removed because you had a larger issue here. You had other states, South Carolina, Georgia, that did not like that language, and they took it out because it was not pro-slavery. It was not anti-slavery either. It was neutral. That was the important thing. 
a reading that the two dissenting justices and Dred Scott vehemently disputed. The dissenters claimed that while enslaved people were undeniably excluded from the polity, free blacks of African descent were considered a part of the people who established the Constitution. Now again, um, <laughs> they weren't, right? Um, at least in, if they weren't part of the elect of the polity, the political polity that did it. I mean, you could, I mean, you could say, well, then women were part of this or whatever. These people were not part of the polity at the time. The people that did it were the people that voted on it and ratified it. Now, you could say they represented these people. That's something you could say. But it was the people of the states that did this. Okay, so these arguments that he's trying to make, he's really trying to, uh, and, and these justices are doing the same thing. He's trying to broaden this out to avoid charges that the left can hammer the other side on. Again, the argument should be, so what? Do we, do we make these arguments against the Greeks when we talk about Greek government in Athens or Sparta that only some people were citizens and the other people were left behind? Or how about the Romans? Do we do the same kind of argument? No, only here in America do we do this. It's a, it's a stupid argument. And it's deflecting from, it's, it's an emotional argument, granted, because the idea, they know they lose if you, if you argue on reason alone. If they argue with emotion, they win. So the idea is to deflect the real issues here and to create a whole nother issue. That's the whole point of all of this. Tawney's history of the founding, like the history of those who today criticize the Constitution, is deeply, deeply misleading. The institution of chattel slavery was as old as mankind worldwide and by no means limited to the enslavement of African people. In 1776, the United States was on the leading edge of the modern movement to abolish chattel slavery. And while I agree with that, uh, that you know, this was a bigger issue than just the United States. As Princeton University historian Sean Blentz has noted in No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, in 1775, five days before the battles of Lexington and Concord, ten Philadelphians, seven of them Quakers, founded the first anti-slavery society in world history, the Society of the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. This group was later reorganized as the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery. Um, so again, what he's getting into here is some of the arguments that would show that, well, I mean, the United States was on the cutting edge of the anti-slavery movement. Now, um, I'm almost getting up to the point where I wanted to, to not to stop. We're about 30 minutes in. So actually, I'm going to stop here. And we're going to continue with this argument that Barnett makes tomorrow that the United States had, was leading the anti-slavery movement. And again, uh, we'll, we'll get into the nuances of this and I'll offer some critique or, or some historical uh, counterweight to this in some ways. Uh, but in some ways, I think they are correct. So I'll talk about this tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.